Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, we're talking about recruitment, both in terms of business and the importance of hiring the right people to build the strongest team possible, but also in the wider context of life and how the people around you can be crucial to any success you hope to achieve. Welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won. So it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast with me, Mark Priestley. First of all, as ever, thank you so much for joining wherever it is you are in the world, however it is you're listening, whatever it is you're up to whilst listening. I genuinely appreciate every single one of you for being here. So thank you. Uh, This week, we're going to talk about a couple of topics, but the first being the one I just introduced, this idea of recruitment. I work with a whole lot of businesses in the modern day. I go around the world talking to companies. I work with companies on a consultation basis. I'm working to try and help them improve their strategies, to help them get closer to their aims and to their goals, to their targets, not just financial targets, but their targets of however they want to measure success. It can be happiness within the organisation. It can be productivity. It can be market share. It can be financial and the all-important bottom line. But there are so many metrics to measure how well you're doing as a company. And of course, exactly the same thing applies to you and I. We can measure our success or otherwise in so many different ways. Yet, typically, it all does come back to money. That's the the way that society has grown. Uh, Our success is, is typically measured by the things we have or the status we have because of those things that we own. The car we drive, the house we live in the job title that it has on our business card. But those things really aren't a great measure of any actual form of success. We can have all the money in the world and be crazily unhappy. We can have the best job. We can be right at the top of a tree in a company and yet be miserable. Is that success? Not in my book. So there are lots of ways to measure it. But at the heart of all of these things, the heart of all of the things that I do when I go and visit these companies and organisations is all about building a team that's going to help you get closer to that success in whatever way it looks for you or your company. When we're building teams, of course, there are a number of ways that we can look at how we do that. I typically will go in and I will assess what's there already. I'll look at the existing team. I'll look at the environment that that team is operating in, the tools they have, the resources they have, the people that make up that team and what their characteristics are. What type of people are they? What's the mission or the goal of that company? And and is everybody bought into it? If they're not bought into that mission, if they're not all pulling in the same direction, is there something that we can do to try and improve that or to turn that around? There are so many different ways to work on that idea of building a strong and solid team. But one of the questions that always comes up, and it comes up really regularly in the talks that I give when we do a Q&A afterwards, always the question comes up about how we hire the right people. How does Formula One hire the right people? My job, how did I get my role in Formula One? It's a role or a job or an industry that so many people see as being glitzy, glamorous, being amazing. The sort of role and job that 
many people would literally give their left arm to be a part of. That's how I felt before I got my job in the sport. It's how I felt growing up as a teenager. Quite honestly, I never lost that feeling. I always felt privileged to be there. And perhaps that was a part of why I was successful within this sport, because I never took it for granted. I always appreciated the privilege that that position gave me, the privilege of working in that environment with the almost at times unlimited resources, with a brilliant set of people around me. But even though I worked in this elite environment full of elite people in almost every single position throughout the company, nearly a thousand people, those brilliant people didn't always come together to formulate the best team. And there are many of examples, 2007 being a really good one, if anyone remembers that at McLaren, how we had almost everything. We had the best car. We almost certainly had the two best drivers in Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso that year. We had some brilliant people. We had a team built on success, the second most successful team in the history of this sport. And yet in that year, despite having huge amounts of resource and money at our disposal, another key factor, particularly back then in Formula One, we failed. We failed to win anything. We came away from that season where we should have won almost everything. We should have come away with both championships. We came away with none. And a big reason for that was the fact that we didn't work as a team. It's well documented in my book and in many other places to many of the reasons why that didn't happen, why our teamwork side of what we were building at McLaren at that period didn't work. In fact, it not just didn't work, it failed spectacularly. Now, we went on the year later to win the championship, and that was almost as a direct consequence of the learnings that came from the epic failures that we almost inflicted upon ourselves in 2007. So we learned a huge amount on how to build a team from that disaster of that year. And personally, I learned a great amount. Probably one of the biggest years for learning in, the, in all of my career, 2007. And in 2008, I was given a role in the team, which was pretty central to rebuilding the team after it, we pulled its, it pulled itself apart in 2007. I was tasked, amongst other things, with bringing some consistency back to the team, with bringing the two halves of our team back together, to making sure that the two halves of our team worked with each other, that we shared information and shared knowledge, that we weren't keeping it for ourselves in this personal goal to be the best on our side of the garage. So I learned a massive amount in that year and is one of the main things that I've been able to use and utilise to go on in my sort of second career, if you like, since leaving the team, was all the things that I learned in 2007. These are the things that I now go and share with companies about how to build high-performing teams. Now that context, that situation in 2007 and 2008 was very much about how do we correct the failures of the year before? How do we bring the existing people not to fight against each other and work for themselves in these small groups or silos, but how do we bring that existing team back together? How do we bring them all onto the same page and get them all pulling in the same direction, appreciating that if we work together, we're going to be far stronger than if it's just two halves of a team fighting against each other? That was my main challenge or one of my main challenges in 2008. So there are so many elements to building a strong team. Now, the one I really want to focus on today, as I touched on in the introduction, is recruitment. Because 
For many situations, you're building a team out of an existing workforce. You may already have a team of people, but they may not be acting like a team in the same way that we experienced in 2007 and 8. However, there are many situations when that situation or that uh, application might be best served by bringing in new people into that team. It might be that you have the opportunity in your job, in your role, to build a team. Maybe you are a manager and you need to be hiring people as part of your responsibilities. Maybe you're looking for a job at the moment or you're climbing the corporate ladder. And so this idea of recruitment could be really important to you on that side of things where you're looking to get the best out of the interview process or how do you best fit yourself into a role when the management or a management structure is looking to fill a more senior position. So I'm hoping what I can share with you today are some little tips and tricks that might help both sides of that, both the recruiters and the people, hopefully prospective recruit recruitees uh, in the future. Now, when I touched on earlier the question that I always get asked, one of the questions I get asked very frequently at the end of my corporate talks, presentations, is this idea of how does Formula One go about hiring people? How do we get these very best, these brilliant people into the pinnacle of a sport? How do we make sure that we get the right people that can handle the pressures of Formula One, that are able to deliver what an elite organisation like Formula One needs? And the answer to that is what I want to base today's podcast on, or at least the first part of it. Because recruitment is a really interesting concepts as a whole when it comes to any business or any industry. Recruiting people for a role, in my personal opinion, is quite an archaic model that we still rely on and we still use across almost all industries. And actually, Formula One's not really any different. When we're hiring in Formula One, and certainly was the case when I got the job, it was the traditional format of I I applied or I sent letters in Uh, Again, I've talked about this before, but I consistently sent many, many letters. I was relentless in my pursuit to get there. But of course, on the other end of that was a manager at McLaren who was constantly receiving my letters. Now, those letters were almost begging for a job. They were me trying to set out a case for why I should be considered for a role at this brilliant place at McLaren. Now, the manager that was receiving those for probably the first 15 or 20 letters. He just sort of glanced as they came across their desk, probably either put them in the bin or filed them somewhere and got his secretary to write back to me, which is what happened in most cases. But eventually he either gave in or he submitted or he was uh, so annoyed with my persistence that he decided to invite me in for an interview. But then the interview process was, I guess, what we would most people would term relatively typical. It was a two interview stage process, the first with the uh, team manager, and then the second was with multiple people in the same interview room. And I went through that process too. And then after that, after a period of time, I was given an opportunity. I was given the job. I was offered a position on the team. Now, that I would imagine is how most people got their jobs today in most industries. When we think about recruitment, that's pretty much what most people still do. We invite somebody in, having sifted through applications and found some of the most um, suitable candidates that we can find whilst flicking through a bunch of CVs or a, a few applications. And then we whittle those down in our minds, perhaps with a little conversation behind the scenes. And then we invite one or two or three or four of those people in for an interview. But then that interview process is 
so old school and archaic, isn't it? It's you invite that person in, they come in, they maybe get dressed up in a suit, they feel very nervous, they come in and they sit in a room on the other side of a desk to a manager or the prospective, uh, the person who might be hiring for that role, and they get asked a bunch of questions for half an hour or so. They get asked questions like, why do you want the job? What are your strengths and weaknesses? You know, what have you done in the past? Give me some examples of where you've really excelled in your current roles. Give me some examples of where you have overcome adversity. These are all typical kind of questions that a traditional interview process sort of uses. And when I say traditional interview process, that is the interview process in almost all cases across all industries. Now, I have a really strong feeling about this because today's podcast, really, I want to explore why I think that's wrong, why I think that's archaic, why it's so out of date and old fashioned and why we should be thinking about recruitment in a completely different fashion. And I include Formula One. This is not a podcast where I talk about how excellent Formula One is at this and the rest of the world could learn from it, because actually Formula One is still operating like the rest of the world in this old fashioned way. The way I think we should be thinking more about recruitment is more along the lines of when we recruit somebody or hire somebody into our team, into our business, what we're really looking for is to build a relationship, hopefully a long-term one that's going to be productive for our organisation. We hope, of course, it's going to be good for the person that we hire. We hope they're going to be happy and fulfilled and satisfied in their role. We want to offer them this route to progression, that they can continue satisfying a need to grow as well. But ultimately, what we're looking for as a business is somebody who's going to contribute to our team and improve all of the metrics that we measure our success levels by, whether that's productivity, whether it's bottom line in terms of profit, whether it's happiness or a wonderful environment across the organization, whether it's being innovative and coming up with new ideas, whatever it might be. We want the person we're hiring to fit into that model and improve it in some way. That is the purpose of recruitment. But that's a relationship that we're about to form, a bond that we hope will grow over time, hopefully a long-term relationship that we want to build. And yet we're making the decision almost always based on inviting that person in, sitting them on the other side of a desk and grilling them for a short period of time, at the end of which, maybe a couple of goes at that, but at the end of which, we then make a decision, which is going to be a long-term decision about whether that person's a right fit for our organisation, and whether they are the person that we should be hiring. I think that's so flawed and old school. And the way I like to relate this, the way I like to compare this, is the other relationships that we form and build in life. Because if you think about a romantic partner, a relationship with somebody who you might want to spend a huge part of your life with, a romantic partner, someone that you might end up living with, marrying even, or forming a long-term relationship with, it's not done over the course of a, a, a half an hour period sat on either side of a desk. We don't ask somebody to come in to dress formally, to present themselves in the best way possible, where they're very, very nervous, and then we don't we grill them for, for half an hour with a set of fairly mundane questions, the answers to which formulate our judgment on that person and therefore a decision about the relationship. We don't do it like that. The way we build relationships in life is over time. We take some time over it. We 
tend to have multiple meetings in different contexts and different environments. We go dating before we end up committing to a person or not. We get to know that person in different situations in life. We might go for a drink. We might go for a coffee. We might go partying. We might go to the cinema. We might spend some time going for a walk. There are so many different situations we put ourselves in to get to know that person. And over time, those situations become more and more intense or involved. The connections we build are become deeper and stronger, and we get to know more about the person that's on the other side of this relationship. And only after all of that period of time has played out and those different situations have been explored and investigated, only after all of that do both parties get the opportunity to either commit or not to this ongoing relationship. Now, that might seem like a really extreme way to think about recruitment, but what if we looked at it along those kind of lines? Maybe not to the same extent. I'm sure not many organisations can t- can afford to take sort of six months uh, to build a relationship or test a relationship with somebody before they eventually go about the process of hiring them. But they can take longer than half an hour. And my suggestion to many organisations, particularly when you're hiring in senior positions, really key appointments that can shape the direction of the company, that can really affect the culture and the environment of the company, the direction the company might be going in even. Those kind of appointments, in my book, should not be done sat across a desk. They should not be a face-to-face grilling of somebody with a list of questions. They should be meeting that person in different environments and different contexts. Because if we think about what that recruitment process is trying to find out, it's not trying to find out whether that person is necessarily going to be good at the job. There are so many other factors we can tell that from. We've got a CV in front of us. We know their history. We know who they've worked for, what they've done, which roles they've occupied in the past. We can get references from people who've worked with them in the past. They'll give us all the information about their skill sets, how much knowledge and experience they've got in a particular field, which computer systems they've worked with. We can learn all of that very, very quickly. That's almost binary information. Have they done it or not? Yes or no? And it's easy to find that out. What we're really buying into when we commit to somebody from this recruitment process is the kind of person they are. It's the kind of character they are. And is that person and character going to fit into the environment that you want to create in your organisation? If you're building a high-performing team, that will only happen if you have the right culture within the organisation. And that means having the right environment for people to thrive. It means having an environment of positivity, of creativity, if that's what you need, of innovation, People feeling like they've got freedom to put ideas forward or to question the existing ways of doing things. You want to find people that have values that are aligned to yours as a company. Because if you don't, over time, even if in the short term, people can work around those. In the long term, it isn't going to work out. In the long term, if your values are different from the values of the organisation... Or as a company, if your values as a business are fundamentally different from a person that you hire, particularly in a senior role, over time, there's going to be increasing divergence between your values and theirs. And that could and probably will end up causing a divide through the middle of your organisation or through the middle of a department they work in. It will start splitting the people that work in that department or in that area of the business. 
people start listening to others, particularly in influential positions. So if they've got a positive, uh, if they've got a, a negative um, disposition about them, that can very easily and very quickly spread throughout the business. And if that happens, it's like a, a virus that can infect your company. If you put one or two important people that have an element of negativity around them, it can spread very quickly. And before you know it, it's like woodworm tearing through a piece of wood. It can happen before you've realized it's happening and then you've got a problem. So this recruitment process should be nothing really to do with work. Whenever I interview people, whenever I've recruited people and I've been in positions in the past where I've had to do this many times, any interview process that I've been through has almost never been about the job. It's almost never been asking questions like, have you done this before? What have you done in this company? What has your role been in the past? You know, how good are you at this particular system? It's never questions like that. What I want to know when I go through an interview process is who is it that I'm talking to here? Not just what kind of job title are they? What position in the company are they? What kind of professional person are they? But what person are they? What's their character? What are their values? What's their personality like? Are they going to fit into the existing team of people that I know that I've already built in my company? And you only find those things out, in my opinion, by taking that person and meeting them and sharing time with them in different contexts. Go for a walk. Don't invite them into the office to sit across a desk. Invite them to a park where you go for a walk. Ask them if you can come and join them on a dog walk with them if you found they own a dog. Meet them for a coffee outside of the office. Take them for lunch. Meet the family. Ask if you can go around and meet them at their home. Invite them around to your home if you feel vulnerable enough to do that. These kind of environments break people down in a much more, a much different way to the office environment, the interview room environment, where there's a person from HR sitting there and your manager, all suited and booted, staring at you with a checklist in front of them. If you get to know the person, you get a much better feeling. And it may not be the same things that can be measured or ticked off a checklist, but you get a gut feeling. And in all of my experience, recruitment, despite whatever qualifications, grades, experience these people might have, ultimately, if you've got a bunch of good candidates, it will come down to gut instinct. It'll come down to the feeling you get about that person when you've met them. And if you've only met them in a half an hour interview process across a desk in a small windowless room, that's not really getting the full picture of who that person is. Whereas if you have taken the time to meet them for lunch, maybe invite their husband or wife or partner along for that lunch as well. Meet the family, meet them in a context where they're with their children. Take them out and go for a dog walk where they might bump into other people they know. Go somewhere where you see them interacting in different environments, where they bump into people and you see them interacting with others that are not you. That gives you a whole new perspective on what that person's like. Are they kind? Are they friendly? Are they interactive with people? Or are they really shy and introvert? These are key details that might help you build a picture of how that person or if that person might fit nicely into your existing team. If we thought more about recruitment like we think about dating, like we think about romantic relationships, and even if it's over a couple of meetings rather than six months worth of dating, but if we think about it in the context of let's go and meet them in a social environment, in a public place, 
in a context away from work to build a picture of what the person behind the facade is like, the person behind the CV. That's the person I want to know who I'm looking at and who I'm talking to when it comes to making a decision that could form the basis of a relationship that might last years, I hope will last years in my company and help my organisation to grow as well as this person. For me, it's key details like that that can change the shape of a business, that can change the shape of the environment in that business. And what that means is changing the culture. The culture of your organisation is almost everything in the long term. You can get short term results out of almost anybody through a number of different methods. Fear is one of those. Pestering and bullying people into getting results is a really effective short term method. But in the long term, it's disastrous. If you want to build long term, sustainable success, it comes down to culture. Exactly the same thing applies to your friend groups, to your families. We work on those relationships over time, and that's why they're successful over time, because we put, a, we put effort and time into getting to know the people before we fully commit and give all of ourselves over to those people in return. How vulnerable are we willing to be during that recruitment process in the hope that we'll get vulnerability back from the person being interviewed, the person being recruited? Vulnerability is where you really start to see the ins and outs of that person. If you only get to see a facade that's sat across a desk that's been put there through bravado and a feeling that this is how they need to portray themselves, that's not the real person. If you break that down and get vulnerability, that's when you start to really learn about people. And one of the best ways to do that is show vulnerability yourself. That's not something that typically happens in any interview process because the manager or the management that are sitting there doing the recruiting have to give off this impression of ultimate professionalism, of being in charge and being in control. But actually, all that does is prevent you from really seeing under the skin of the person that sat across the desk from you. So this idea of recruitment, in my mind, can absolutely change. It can change in Formula One, but it can change in your business, in your industry, and it can change across the board. There must be some middle ground between dating somebody for six months and a half hour interview process in a small box room inside your office. Of course, there is middle ground in that. And it is a couple of outside meetings. It's a process over a couple of meetings, a couple of situations in different environments and different contexts where the only goal of that meeting is to get to know the person. Nothing more than that. To get to know what kind of person they are, just like you would if you were thinking about dating or in the early phases of dating. So that's hopefully key information. It's hopefully useful if you're a recruiter if you're looking to hire people for your team, but also take what you want from that if you're the person being recruited. If you're looking for a job, if you're looking to climb up the ladder and you're in situations where you need to impress people for them to want to recruit you, think about what I've just said. Offering up you as a person, showing vulnerability, giving way more than just the answers to the questions that you might get asked in an interview process can be key to letting that person know who you really are. And when they go away from a series of interviews and it comes down to that moment of gut instinct, who did they really feel they got to know and who did they feel would really fit into their team culture? 
if you've opened yourself up, if you've offered more than the corporate answers, it's those details that could be the thing that swings it for you. Right, just hold on to that thought about vulnerability for a moment, because I want to come back to that for the second half of the podcast in just a moment. But before I do, I want to take a quick moment to say thank you to all of you, obviously, for being here, but to all those people who took the moments out of their week to send me a message, to ask me a question. Those questions and comments and messages came in all forms. There were DMs in my social media at F1 Elvis. People contacted me on LinkedIn, sent me emails at mark at f1elvis.com or left me reviews and comments in the podcast platforms that you listen or watch this on on YouTube. So thank you so much to all of you for doing that. Those interactions are what fuel me to keep this podcast going. It's what the podcast is about. And the further we go with this, I promise you, it will become even more interactive and hopefully even more beneficial to you. But it's your messages, it's the questions you send me. Those are the things that that I get up in the morning for. I enjoy it. Now, I take an increasing amount of time out of my week to make sure that I dedicate an afternoon or an evening or sometimes an early morning to sit down and just spend a couple of hours many times it's more than that, responding to your questions and your feedback. I do that because for me, it's the least I can do. If you're willing to take the time to message me, well, the the least I can do is respond to you, is to take some of my time to respond to you. That's because I appreciate it. But I really am grateful to those of you that sent me questions that you'd like me to cover in the podcast. We're getting an increasing number of people who are writing with challenges they're facing, There might be financial challenges that so many of us are struggling. How do we make it through the month? How do we become more efficient? Challenges that you've got in your professional lives, at work, dealing with difficult people, difficult management, um, friends and family challenges that we all face all of the time. Many of those things, I can sometimes find a way to utilise the things that I've learned through Formula One to help in some way or the other, or to at least offer a perspective that might give you some advice that could be useful. And that's all this is. It's me offering a perspective based on the vast experience that I've been able to build through Formula One of working with so many elite people in every single part of that Formula One business. And when you work with elite people in every day, in every situation and context of life, that rubs off on you. And you find ways to overcome the challenges that many people really can't see beyond in the normal and real world. So if I can help with that, that's what I want to do. Please send me your comments, your questions, your feedback, good or bad on the podcast. And I will promise you that I will continue to do my best to try and respond to each and every one of you. So thank you. Okay, let's uh, move this on then. Uh, We talked about vulnerability there just at the end of part one. Vulnerability in terms of recruitment. How vulnerable do you want to be as a recruiter in the hope that you might get vulnerability from the person you're recruiting? And that throws up this question of how much as a prospective employee, how much vulnerability are you willing to put forward? How much of yourselves are you willing to put on offer let's say on a recruitment, uh, in a recruitment situation, in the hope that your character, your personality, the real you will actually win you that position, will win you the job? Or do you need to put up some kind of facade? Do you feel like you need to put up a front because you've got either imposter syndrome, you've got low self-confidence, low self-esteem, and actually 
You may not feel like the real you is what will win you the job. It's a pretend you. It's a a front that you can create, a character that you can put on for that moment. Of course, over time, that's not going to hold water. If you're building a pretend character, if you're turning up at an interview and putting on the face of somebody who you're not really, with different values, with different beliefs, if that person who goes for the interview gets the job it's going to be very difficult for you to continue showing up every single day as that character that you constructed for that particular situation. And so being vulnerable, being real, being honest in those situations, yes, there's a chance it may not get you a job on a certain occasion, but on many other occasions, it absolutely will. But what it will do is get you the job that's right for you, because then you can show up for work being normal, being yourself. You don't have to portray a character. The real you can turn up every single day for the number of years that you're still in that particular company without having to remember who the character is you're playing. So true vulnerability, true honesty in those situations is almost always the best way to be. And the interviewer has a really key role, like we discussed, in getting that out of you. And as an interviewer, being open and honest yourself and vulnerable is probably the best way to do that. The reason I wanted to talk about vulnerability and how much of ourselves we release to the world in these situations, how much we lay on the table and put on show, is because we're going through F1 launch season right now. Formula One teams are going through the process right now of launching their cars to the world. Now, I use the word launch in the vaguest possible terms, because as many of you will know, we've seen a variety of launches so far. We've seen cars from 2022 dressed up in the new colour scheme, the new livery, and put forward to the world, portrayed as the new car. But we all know that it isn't. There are changes to these cars that really give it away. The detail is all there. Some teams have put their real car or a version of their real car out there on display. And we've even seen now cars taking to the racetrack. And at that point, it's impossible to really hide the details that are on board your car because it's the real car. It's there. It's turning a wheel and we all get to see it. So this question of within the context of F1 launch season, how much of what we're what we've created how much of ourselves how much of our personality how much of our characters and our cars in formula 1 senses how much of that are we willing to put on the table and lay out on the line for everybody to see now typically over the years f1 launch season has been a really secretive part of the of the championship a really secretive and cloaked part of the calendar year And I've been involved in many F1 launches where we dress things up, we hide things, we bolt on pretend parts to a car for a launch to try and throw the scent off for other teams who might be sniffing around having a look. We go to enormous lengths to to hide some of the crucial details throughout the season. When we bring an upgrade to a car, we don't want other teams to necessarily see it in the days before it hits the racetrack because we have this inbuilt paranoia and fear that they're going to go away and copy what we do. They're going to go away and take our idea and somehow turn up with it on their car a few days later and steal the limelight or the results. And I wonder how many of us, if we think about our lives and our professional lives, our personal lives, how many of us can kind of relate to that? How many of us do things like that in real life? Think about it. When we are meeting new people, 
and we just talked about it earlier, the interview process going for a job. How many of us do turn up with the real us on display or how many of us hold some of us back and put up this front and only release certain elements of our character or our personality into this environment that we've put ourselves in? When we go to school, how many of us put the real us into that playground environment? into the environment where our friends can see us and get to know us? Or are we portraying somebody because we think that's the type of character, the type of person that we want to be seen as? And I bet we all do it. I bet we all do it all the way through life. I'm sure it becomes less and less the older we get. I've found that as I get older, I have less requirement to do that. I have less need to try and appear as somebody that I'm not. And I feel like, and I hope, I'm much more honest today with myself and with the people around me about who I am than I probably was when I was 15, 16, 17 years old. Of course I was, because back then it was about, I was trying to be macho. I was trying to be clever. I was trying to be cool. I was trying to fit in with a crowd. I was trying to fit in with what I deemed society wanted me to be. And I'm sure we all do this to certain extents today. I've talked about before on social media, the kind of person that our social media profiles portray of us, for many people, is not that close to reality. So my question in all of this was, when thinking about Formula One teams unveiling what they've created to the world, are they really unveiling what they've created? Or are they unveiling tiny elements of it just for the purposes of this exposure on launch day and they're holding actually the reality of these cars back until we get to a racetrack and of course that is what's happening in almost every case but then I started questioning why do we do that as a Formula One team back in the day it was because absolutely a team could see something on our car they could see a front wing and they could go away and they could be consistently testing it. They could simulate it. They could create a model of it, run it in the wind tunnel 24-7. They could bring a version to a racetrack and pound round lap after lap with their dedicated test team, learning about that concept on their car to see if it would work and improve what they have as, a, as an existing model. Today, though, that's not quite possible in the same way. We've got massive restrictions in terms of testing. In fact, nobody can go testing other than the group tests, pretty much, by your sort of little filming days, which are highly restrictive. So if I saw somebody having a front wing on the car, what am I going to do between launch period, the launch period? If I see somebody release a car and I like what I see and I'm working for another Formula One team, what do I do? Well, we can flag it to our drawing office and they might go away and they might have a little sketch around and they might maybe if they get to the point where they think it could offer something to them they might come up with a digital model that they could simulate and after that they may possibly at some point weeks or even months down the line decide it's a a, a process or a development path worth exploring further and it may shape the direction they go but that's a big big if because it has to fit in with the concept of their car existing it has to be something that they can do within the time frames and budgets that modern formula one is highly restrictive upon and bearing in mind they've already got a very clear development path that they're working towards and that's already taking up all of their budget and time it's actually pretty unlikely that whatever I show on my car is really going to change the direction of one of my main rivals. Today's Formula One is not the Formula One of 20 years ago where that might be possible. 
So why on earth can't Formula One teams just put their cars on display? Why can't they show the world what they've been working on, what they've created over the winter, and let's get, the, get it out there and get on with it? Let's take away much of that secrecy and the time and effort and resource that it's taken to create the secrecy. Because the reality is that if we were able to just release our car on the day that we said we're going to launch it to the public, to the world, which might be close to going testing, we're then going to go testing with it where we need the real car because that's what testing's for. There's no point testing with a pretend or fake car. We have to be able to learn in the limited and valuable track time that we have available to us. And so it has to be the real car in its latest development state possible in that moment. That means that if we launch with that spec a few days earlier, we, we're already halfway there. We don't need to then strip and rebuild the car. We don't need to create something different for launch day. We can just continue working down this one clear path towards getting a car on the racetrack with the design spec or the development spec that we know is the direction that we're clear is the right one, the one we're going in. It would save a huge amount of unnecessary secrecy, disappointment and disillusionment from fans. And it would also, I'm sure, save a reasonable amount of resource and time in creating the veil of secrecy that I don't think we need anymore. And in the real world, I'm pretty sure it's the same thing. Creating this image of yourself, whether it's online or your persona that you put forward to people in an interview process or in a context of friends or social situations, how much good does that actually do for us? Hiding elements of our character or personality that maybe we don't like or maybe that we don't think other people will like, is that actually a concept or a misconception that we've all kind of bought into over time. Formula One still hide their cars on launch day, I'm sure, because that's what we've always done. It's a legacy thing. It's a tradition that's become part of launch season. I don't believe there's much value in doing that anymore to a modern Formula One team in the modern era. Yet we still do it. And I think in life, it's very similar. I don't think there's much value in putting out a persona or putting out a character to the world that isn't the real one, because there's so much opportunity for us to trip up. And I think I've talked about this before. If you're on a dating site, one of these digital dating sites now where you just see a picture and a few details and you swipe left or right to make a very quick decision about who that person is and whether you think you're going to like them. If you put up an image or a set of information, some details, some headline figures and stats and character traits, they're not really the ones that are you in real life. Even if that person swipes the right way and decides they want to go down the route of meeting you, what's going to happen when they meet you? They're going to be hugely disappointed that it's not sold a scene. You're not the person that they saw when they swiped in the app. Building a fake persona or an enhanced character for the benefit of others doesn't actually benefit anybody. You stand to lose more by putting yourself through that kind of scenario than you do by just being vulnerable, putting yourself out there to a certain extent. And of course, we have limits. We can hold certain amounts of our character and our life back to be private. And absolutely, we should do that. That's actually really important. A lot of people, by the way, don't do enough of that. Keeping your private life private, but your public persona 
and the bit you want to share with friends, with colleagues, with the world on social media, keep it real. The benefits of putting the real you out there in the same way that the benefits, in my mind, of putting the real Formula One car out there are significant. If we put the real Formula One car out there for our launch, we get less interruption in this very tight time frame that we have between there and the racetrack when we go testing for the very first time. And the knock-on effect of that is, of course, the short period of time we have beyond testing when we go racing. These are very tight time constraints under massive pressure when there's a huge amount of development happening in Formula One. That development's happening down a very clear trajectory, a very clear path that we decided probably some months earlier, that's the way we want to go, the aerodynamic direction we want to go in. That's how we want to design our suspension, and that's where we want to develop it. If we're going to go through a lightning process, trying to make the car lighter, these are the areas we want to really focus on. All of these details are decided upon months earlier, and then it's all guns blazing and, and full steam ahead, to head down that path to the point where we're as ready as we can be at the very first Grand Prix. Any interruption in that process is just noise. It's distraction. It's taking away resource and time and effort quite often from that very clear trajectory that we need to be on to hit our targets. Going through a launch that is protracted for fans or sponsors or to put forward a version of ourselves that's only there to distract people from what the real car is. All that time and effort in digital renders of cars that have details missing or deliberately misleading people going down a different direction. No other Formula One team is taking any notice of those digital renders anyway, so why go to the lengths that you're going to to create them? Even putting a car on display that's not your real car what did that take? How many people were involved in that? How much money and resource, how much time was involved in getting that car prepared? Getting the 2023 livery applied to that car, which may be an old car that's been repainted, reliveried. It might have different bits of fake suspension on it, new wheels. You might have changed a couple of details to try and convince people it's your right car. How much did all that cost you? I don't just mean financially what did it cost you. I mean, what's the cost of going down that route? And what's the value of going down that route to use a Formula One team? I think nothing in terms of value, but in terms of cost, I wouldn't be surprised if it's reasonably significant. The same thing applies to us. What's the cost of us trying to construct a character for the purposes of others, to try and mislead people into thinking we're somebody that we're not? What's the cost of all that? There's cost to us in terms of the stress of trying to keep up with that character, trying to maintain that facade, that facade which you can only do behind the veil, the secrecy, the, the blanket of your phone screen. If you're talking about digital and social media, you can keep it up easily from behind your keyboard. But what about when you get into the real world? What about when you meet somebody who knows you as that online character? What about when you go through the dating process and somebody swipes the right way asked to meet you, what are you going to do then? Are you going to try and keep up that facade on the date? Might work the first time or the second time, but it will not work in the long term. And it goes back to where we started this podcast, long-term relationships, whether that is in business or socially, romantically, whatever. Long-term relationships only happen and are only sustainable in a successful way 
when there's total honesty and vulnerability about the characters, about the people that we are. People being true to their values is one of the most important things that any relationship is based upon. And creating a false persona, whether it's online or otherwise, will almost certainly be going against your core values. Otherwise, why create the false one? Why not just put the real one out there? If we put the real persona and character, the real version of us, if we put that out into the world, some people may not like it, but some will. And it's the ones that will like it, that do like it, that grow to like it, or that want to learn more about it. It's those people that are the people that are going to form our bonds and our teams as we move forward. You skip a big part of that selection process by being honest and vulnerable right from day one. If we put out a false character or a caricature of ourselves, we've got to go through a process of, at some point, unveiling the real us to the person that we're meeting, or they've got to do the same to us. Now, that can be a big risk, a gamble. It can go through massive, stressful situations at the time when you've got to do that. If you've lied to somebody through a dating process about where you live, who your family are or what they do, what your living situation is, as an example. If you're hiding the fact that you smoke, for example, I know that happens in many contexts. If you're doing that, there's going to come a time when either you're going to get found out or you've got to come clean. Now, that's going to be hugely stressful building up to that moment. You're going to find that very difficult. It's going to create all sorts of pain points in the build up to that before you even do it. Just the process of thinking about doing that, when you get to know and like this person, you want to take the relationship further, it's going to be incredibly hard to eventually come clean. And then the moment you've got to do it, well, that's just so hard, so difficult. But think about the consequences of doing that. The person you're about to come clean to now knows you've been lying to them all this time. You haven't been honest. You've been, in fact, dishonest about elements of your character, elements that they may have grown to like. That completely pulls the rug out from beneath them. And by the way, this is not just a dating thing. This is the same in companies and businesses. This is the same in all relationships. If all of a sudden, at some point, you've got to come clean about who you really are, all parts of that relationship become undermined. The trust that you may have built over time building up to that point, trust that you may have been essential in in the factor of you deciding you want to now come clean because you now have built so much trust, you feel ready to share the truth of this person. That trust can all be wiped out in the moment that you have to then come clean and tell the person that the guy or the person they have grown to know and love is not the real person. That actually there's some elements of that person that you may not like so much. Or even if you do like, they're not the ones that you've seen or met or got to know so far. Imagine what that does to the person receiving that information. Trust is vital when it comes to relationships in any context. And if you're talking about business, if you're talking about corporate and company business, it's the same thing. Trust is absolutely essential. If you portray your company in a certain way, but then you don't act in that same way, Your company values don't back up those behaviours that you're putting out there to the world. It's going to fall apart. It's not going to be sustainable. The relationships you need in business to be successful won't be there. And certainly they won't be there for the long term. So trust, vulnerability, 
being honest about who you are and living as close to what you believe your values are is absolutely key in almost every aspect of what we do. Not very many people do that in their younger years because we have a, an inbuilt need, a sort of innate need to try and fit into certain groups. And that's perfectly natural. That's part of our evolution as tribes we grew up having to fit into an existing tribe. There was no scope or space for somebody to be an individual many thousands of years ago because you wouldn't survive. You needed the tribe. You needed to be part of that tribe and to fit in with the tribe to survive. And so it's no surprise that as teenagers, we feel that same need. We feel like we have to dress the same as the people around us, like the same music, go to the same places. We go through this internal dilemma around that period of time in our lives deciding whether we want to or need to fit in and how we need to go about doing that. Do we compromise our values to fit in with the group? Because that's what everything internally and innately is telling us to do. And many people just do that as teenagers. I did it. We all did it. But as you get further on in life, as you grow and you become more self-aware, more self-confident, more in touch with your real values and how you want to live your life, what sort of person you really want to be, the true you, it becomes uh, the opportunity, let's say, or the possibility. It becomes the freedom to start putting the real you out there. And for some people, that comes much earlier in life than others. For some, it's much later. And what I'm trying to part on with or part with you today, put forward to you today, is this idea that the earlier we're able to do that, the better we will be in the long term. It's a little bit like investing. The earlier you start to invest because of the way interest compounds over time, the earlier you can become true to your values, the greater returns you will see for the much longer period in your life. But it doesn't matter if you haven't done it yet. Do it now. Start to think about what your values are. Who are you? What kind of person are you? What kind of person do you really want the world to see you as, to know you as? And can we be brave enough, bold enough, honest enough to put those values out there, to put the real version of us out to the world? Because that's how we're going to get the best relationships back. And from those relationships come the greatest successes we will see, whether that's in business, whether it's in our romantic situations as friends, in all contexts of our life, relationships form the very heart of all of them. We can only get so far on our own. But with a team around us, with people that we know and trust around us, we'll get so much further. And we can only do that if we're honest and open, if we're vulnerable, and if we really are the person on the outside that we know we are and we want to be on the inside. Guys, we're going to have to leave it there. That's another hour that I'm truly grateful for every single one of you for sharing this hour with me. And as I said earlier on, I cannot thank you enough for the messages, the support, the questions, the feedback that you give me every single week. So please keep that coming. And this week, I really would love it if you can help me to share this episode. If there's one thing you do this week, just tell a friend, share it around on your social platforms. And if you do, tag me, tag me in any of these shares, because honestly, I'll repost them. I cannot thank you enough. And I'm truly grateful for those. I will help you to share that message if you can do that for me. So please share it around. Tell somebody about what we do here. If you think it can benefit them in any way, that's what this podcast is all about. I've had a privileged 
life and a privileged position to have grown up through the sport of Formula One. And I know that what I've learned and what I've taken it upon myself to learn since can benefit you and many other people in this world. So if you can do anything to help me to spread that word, please do so. Have a wonderful week, guys. Thank you again. And don't forget, as you go through every single day, just ask yourself this question at the end of it. Check in with yourself and see how close you got to this. Use it as your mantra, as I do every single day. Do the right things. Do the things right.